Hi, I'm Dr. Mitzi Krakover. Welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. Prior to the recent midterms of 2022, I hosted a webinar that we called Putting Women's Health on the Ballot, where 11 experts joined me in four separate panels to discuss the various ways that policy impacts on women's health. The panel that follows focuses on the impact of research on women's health and how policy decisions impact not only in how we study women's health, but how we turn those discoveries into innovations and bring them to the marketplace. Our panel was comprised of Linda Group, co-founder and general partner of Avestria Ventures, Delphine O'Rourke, a partner at Goodwins and the leader of the Women's Health and Wellness Healthcare Practice, as well as an adjunct professor at Columbia Law School, and Dr. Sonia Sharma, Associate Professor at La Jolla Institute for Immunology. So, Sonia, I'm going to start with you because I I think I teed it up for you with that last panel with respect to um, research. And, you know, we just heard that lack of research has really impacted on their clinical practice, lack of research on women's health. And I can't think of a better example than your work where you identified a sex-based difference that could really have significant implications for how we practice medicine. So talk a little bit about your research with metabolites and cardiovascular health and um, and the significance of those findings, potentially. Uh, you're absolutely right that women-specific or female-specific or sex-specific research has historically been underfunded um, and, uh, you know, really, uh, and this has impacted the way that we understand a lot of common chronic inflammatory diseases, such as cardiovascular disease, which is, of course, the number one killer of women in this country. Our research has really, especially in the last few years, tried to focus on addressing this disparity in our understanding of the central premise that cardiovascular disease is different in women and in men. And it's, it's a simple and fundamental concept, but really hasn't been translated at all uh, into the clinical cares, as you just said. And just to give you an example of that, you know, failure to translate that biological reality is that look at the funding. I mean, only about 4.5% of the more than $400 million uh, that's committed yearly to studying coronary artery artery disease is focused on this disparity. And that translates to the the way that these drugs are being developed in the way that women are not actually equally represented in the clinical trials. And can I just interrupt? I think that we just need to underline the fact that cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women. You know, so it's, it's not a small deal. (laughs) It's not a small deal at all. And again, one would think, you know, just based on that metric and the simple fact that women, you know, comprise an equal proportion of the population, that the research would be equal and the number of drugs, uh, the drugs would be tested equally in women and men, but they're not yet there. And so what our lab has been trying to do is 
we're, we study the immune system and we know that the immune system has such a profound effect on basically, I, I would say, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it impacts almost every single disease because blood, of course, enervates every single organ. And with CVD, you know, it's increasingly uh, re uh, recognized as an inflammatory immune disease. And what we know is that inflammation tends to be more robust in general, in, in women. And this is likely because goes back to pregnancy, because, you know, when we're pregnant, we need that boost in the immune system pr to protect the developing fetus. And so what our lab has tried to do is focus on the molecular drivers, the metabolite, the, met the metabolite, metabolite drivers of inflammation, because inflammation and metabolism are really, really tightly uh, interconnected because uh, immune cells have to proliferate, they have to grow and they need energy. And so we've been trying to look at the specific differences in the immune drivers that drive more higher inflammation um, in, in females. And you, again, found that there's a difference because you actually looked and, and a lot of people don't ask that question or haven't, you know, historically. And so obviously things have changed in the years you know, you heard a, an allusion to the fact that we've, for the most part, been doing research on 70 kilogram white men because they're easier to study, they're less expensive to study and so forth. But in 1994, the NIH said, we're not doing that anymore. We're going to increase funding for women's health research. To be funded, you have to include women and underrepresented people. But it wasn't until 2016 that they suggested that you include females in preclinical research, which means female mice as well as the male mice, right? And so all of those are policy decisions, correct? And yes. who determines research funding and who determines those kinds of mandates? That's a great question for folks to understand the, the process. Centrally, you know, who, do, who is deciding, at least for the researchers, is the National Institutes of Health. And that's our federal body uh, that funds uh, uh, through taxpayer money basic research and clinical research, okay, into diseases. So, so this is very much a government-mandated policy um, that, that basically comes down um, to the researchers. And it's very important because, you know, there's it's for so long, I think there was just a lack of knowledge, a lack, lack of appreciation um, that these differences that you kind of eloquently said, you know, there's a big difference between, um, you know, in body physiology and weight in, um, in, in just general biology of, let's say, a, a six foot tall, 200 pound man and, and a woman. And then you add on other layers. We talked about pregnancy uh, being a huge determinant. And so uh, what I would say is that, you know, the NIH, and, and I really want to be positive here. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> we really did talk about that, that 1994 law. And there was yeah. another two, which dealt with women and minorities in clinical trials. So they had to be included and they could not be excluded just based on finances, which was the excuse that that folks were giving, I think, oh, it's too it's too expensive to change what we already have. So they did that in 2016. The NIH mandated that also in basic research. We're talking about cells. We're talking about mice. And so these two kind of uh, mandates have been very important, I think, in supporting researchers like like myself who now feel more empowered to study these sex differences. Whereas I, I will say before that, it was kind of this like 
I don't want to say it was a dirty little secret, but it was something that you never wanted to get up and say, well, you know, I'm studying something that's different in male and female mice. And it was kind of almost laughable at that time. Well, why are you studying something that's not inclusive? It must be an artifact, but it's not. I mean, no, you see it's that. not. It's not. You see that in the disease disparity that we sure. talked about for CBD. So I, I, that's the positive part. You know, the negative part is that we're not there yet. And so I can't tell you that today, every single clinical trial is equally enrolling. Uh, sure. Women. Well, yeah. it's a start, as you said, we'll try to be positive, but you know, from your kind of work to innovation, it's what seeds innovation. And that's where Delphine and Linda, um, you know, come in. Uh, Delphine, as someone who works with these women's health companies, um, what do you think um, are the policy changes that need to, to close that clinical research gap so that we can have more innovation? The issue of not reporting on the impacts of gender is huge. And as we touched on, you have the grant piece, but there's also, you know, what do all the pharmaceutical companies need to do? And that's where the FDA comes in and not just having, and, and you know, let's recall in 1977, women were prohibited from participating in, in clinical trials, um, but it's, you know, FDA guidance and then enforcement and monitoring um, because there can be guidance, but if there isn't that follow-up like any other area, then you don't have data and, you know, there, you don't have the same incentives. So I would say, you know, really a requirement that the guidance, as the FDA likes to say, on the, on the impacts of sex or gender, we are seeing more enrollment um, of women in clinical trials, but not early stages. You know, and I think it's also important to remember that, you know, in the administration, we have the presidential elections coming up in, in two years. Um, the head of the FDA, the head of HHS, the head of NIH um, generally changes with the administration. So it's important to think about what that impact will be because they're both powerful policy making and grant making institutions. And I'll note on the, you know, on the amount of, of donations, you know, it's sort of uh, there were two announcements recently. One was a $3 million grant and the other was a $6 million grant in October timeframe uh, focused on reproductive rights, you know, that were applauded. I mean, the budget, the thing, you know, don't quote me on the exact number because it's, I think it's, it's like 1.7 trillion. Um, so that is less than a drop in the bucket. So it's not just about getting, you know, yes, we need funding, but come on. Six million dollars, um, you know. So, so really pushing, and then again, as someone noted, it's Congress that's going to approve the budget. So, when you're thinking about voting in two weeks, whoever you're voting for um, may be part of that process and saying yes, it's great to to have a budget, and then it needs to be approved. So, really making it not discretionary, but a requirement that's then enforced. Great point, Linda. Do you want to add to that? Well, I will say um, to piggyback on Delphine's comment, do you know, as much as the NIH can control who gets funding, which is incredibly important, when you look at what the FDA has been willing to approve, um, do you know, remember, private companies are not relying on the NIH for their funding. Um, you know, if we're talking about some of the large pharmaceutical companies, and there has been no requirement that their studies represent any particular type of population. Now, what our companies are seeing in going to the FDA now is that they are, when they're getting guidance about how they should structure their clinical trials, the FDA is pushing more on 
all types of, well, not all types, but more types of diversity, okay, in terms of what those private companies are presenting for approval. Yet, the last data I saw was 2015, still only 28% of trials are they analyzing the data by biological sex. So even if you, inc- if you were to include 50% of women in your trial, if you don't bother to look, analyze the results by the biological sex, it, it's pointless, right? Um, so the FDA needs to ramp up its game, I think, on all of that. We're slowly seeing moves towards that. And there was a lot of excitement about a year ago about how many more women were in clinical trials and the FDA was approving more. But in fact, it just happened to be that in a given year, there were more approvals for women-specific drugs. So that was not that was not indicative of a normal year, right? So let's not pat ourselves on the back yet. Um, and absolutely, you know, you're coming from the world of venture capital, everything comes down to funding, right? If you do not fund this early stage research into women, you will never see those innovations. And we've tried many times to s- split apart where the NIH funding actually goes. And the best we could do um, is we came up with maybe as high as 11% of the NIH funding was focused towards women's health. And we may be undercounting it because maybe we don't understand all the different ways to tease out the NIH. Um, And then if you look at the private markets, at best 4% of R&D dollars are are being devoted towards women's health. And again, we define women's health as anything that impacts women exclusively. So that could be menopause. It could be ovarian cancer. It can be reproductive health in terms of labor and delivery. But it's also the diseases that predominantly impact women. Mm-hmm. So Alzheimer's disease, two-thirds of patients are women, and that's not because they live longer. Autoimmune disease, 80% of patients are women. And then, as Sonia brought up so well, Cardiovascular disease is a disease that impacts men and women, but it impacts them differently. Different prevalence, different symptoms. You know, women wind up in the emergency room and are so with a heart attack, and they're dis, they're misdiagnosed. They're often sent home because they're quote unquote having a panic attack because they're not having the same symptoms a man is having. And we're learning that colorectal cancer, thyroid cancer, different presentation, different. Um, prevalence in men and women. And so, you know, women's health is not just about having babies. And we think that all of us need to start thinking about it that way. You talked about funding at the research level. You talked about funding um, at the, you know, the, the, the private area, private markets. And now let's take it a step further where you live and that's investment. And so what are you seeing in terms of investment in women's health and how can legislation or regulation help you with that? The more funding that the NIH does towards women's health in terms of grants, that really supports a lot of our companies. So we can invest in an early stage startup, but that investment is being supplemented by grants. So grants really do matter. Um, But you know, don't look to the Silicon Valley for um, big improvements in women's health. Do you, you know, as far as we can tell, so we know only 2%, less than 2% of venture capital dollars goes to female founders. When you look at venture capital funding for the life sciences, so healthcare, um, biology, 
less than 1% of all life science funding in venture capital goes towards women's health. So we're really not getting it in the Silicon Valley, right? Um, and there are, all, you know, there are all kinds of excuses about why. But I will say the entrepreneurs are getting it. Do you know, we do very early stage funding, and there are so many great innovators out there with great ideas. And yet the capital that is available to them from venture capitalists is minuscule. I mean, we're out there, and there's only a handful of other venture capitalists who are trying to fund innovations in women's health. And our dollars are just minuscule compared to the dollars that have gone to things like e-cigarettes, right? Um, so, do you know, there, the overall capital markets have got to understand the opportunity and be willing to take the risks and move towards the sector. Let's talk about ROI really quickly. A good example of when we, any investor looks, they want the return on investment. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And that's Women's Health Access Matters. And I want to give a shout out to Carol Lee Lee, who uh, founded that organization. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it goes with what Linda said, I think eloquently, is it, it goes back to the funding. It goes back to the dollars. WAM, or Women's Health Access Matters, is a coalition that believes very strongly that women's health not only is that is primarily an economic issue. It's a societal issue, but an economic issue that we literally can't afford to ignore. And the premise is based on the fact that ignoring women's health has an enormous cost for the workforce, you know, for the healthcare system that is just not being addressed. And just to give, you know, just some, uh, I think the most eloquent uh, fact they have uh, is from the WAM report, which they commissioned. And this is a report that's basically examining the hardcore economics of the women's healthcare disparities. And what they've concluded in the WAM report is that investing for example, $300 million into women's health research would generate such a large um, restoration to the economy, a $13 billion benefit to the economy. And where does that come from? That comes from women who are more active and accessible to the workforce and less of a burden on our healthcare and our societal uh, supports. So it makes sense. Delphine, I think this is going to have to be maybe the last question, but you know, um, so we have this research, we have the innovation, it's coming to market, and now it can't get promoted. Talk a little bit about that challenge and how you've seen it uh, be dealt with. Are you referring to censorship? Yes. Okay. Um, so the challenge has been on, on social media that there are certain products, innovative products in the women's health space, or even through pretty standard products, um, that are being censored by major social media platforms, think Facebook, for example, uh, among others. So that certain words are being caught and images through their filters and policies. And you can look up, you can go to Google and look up their, their, their policy on um, what's permissible and being identified as pornographic or unacceptable. Um, you know, spoke to a company where they said breastfeeding was was dinged because it was considered, again, pornographic. Um, so why is this a challenge? It's a challenge because it's limiting access to education for for users of social media. I mean, you know, if it's got guidance on lactation, on breastfeeding, 
um, that's an opportunity lost. It's harder for innovators if they can't get their products out there to the market through social media. We know it's a huge uh, marketing platform. So their returns, their market entry is going to be limited. So it's not just a, you know, a, a theoretical question. It's okay. So when investors are looking at um, investment in a, in a startup, well, okay, what, what are your numbers look? Like, what are your sales? What's your engagement? Uh, particularly, let's say mobile apps, where you're really looking at what is a user engagement over and over. If the companies are blocked from these social media platforms, that can be really prohibitive. Yet at the same time, when you look at, um, you know, their apps for, for um, let's say, male products or advertisement for male-specific products that are arguably a lot more provo provocative and sexy, um, than any of these female products. So, you know, it's been brought to, there's a great organization called the Center for Reproductive Justice, uh, Jackie Rotman, great study on the issue. And the question is, how do you address it? You know, um, these are private policies, um, uh, you know, but we're seeing a discrepancy in the enforcement. Um, when I say the enforcement, and part of it is the algorithms. So hopefully the companies themselves will recognize that they're doing sort of public disservice. If that and Meta just came out and said that they would be better. They did. They just came out and said that they would be better. Um, you know, and I've heard, you know, companies said, well, I'm not going to call it breastfeeding. I'm going to call it chest feeding. I mean, oh, I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. you know. Well, and, 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 and there was legislation introduced i believe or yeah, i mean it's it's an issue so that's that, a place where you know perhaps policy can help us policy can help us in saying you know you can't have gender discrimination um and you know one last point is you know there's statistics that 40 percent. this is why the educational piece is so important in addition to for innovators you know 40 percent of, of people who thought abortion care used some type of contraception. So they were trying. So there's an opportunity for widespread education, community education, in addition to helping innovators, you know, achieve market share. Um, and, you know, again, it's a, it's a free speech. There's so many different angles to it that I hope that other platforms will follow. Great. Well, that's going to have to be the last word. Again, I had so much more to talk to you about, but hopefully we'll do it another time. Thank you all for coming on today. Our podcast is produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian. Until next time, be well.